I'm going to invite, uh, is it both of you or just Ethan? It's three of you. All right. Of course, Evelyn's got something to say, I'm sure. <laughs> Why don't you guys come on up? And uh, we sure welcome you here today. And uh, it's, this was their, uh, well, Ethan's first church to come to here in Oregon and to uh, um, part of the support back in 2014, I believe. And some of you might have remembered that, those of you who were here back then. And, uh, but they come today and share it. And uh, Lord bless you as you do so. Thanks. And you can take that out. Okay. Good morning. We're glad we get to be here with all of you today. Um, as uh, Pastor Jim was saying, we've um, the first time I came was in 2014 as a single person, and every time I've come back, the family has grown. So uh, uh, the next time I came back, we were married, and then now Evelyn is here. We were here for camp, and uh, we're back a fourth time. So we're glad to be in this area. Um, Ashley and Evelyn don't always stick around up front real long because of Evelyn mostly. Uh, <laughs> can you say hi? <laughs> I'm surprised. Last week at Woodburn, she wouldn't say a word. So you guys have something special, I guess. Uh, that's kind of exciting. So anyway, but uh, she's going to go to Children's Church, but she wanted to come up and at least say hello. And... Bye-bye. <laughs> she's two. She'll be three in November. That's usually a question that we get a lot of. She's uh, learning E's and S's right now. That's what our all of the paper in our house has been covered in, is her E's and S's. Uh, we have a baby doll shoved in every drawer, and uh, she just brings a whole different level of joy to our, to our family. So um, before I begin, today I, I want to point out, this is going to be a little bit different than some missionary messages, um, in the fact that it's going to be more of a message than a presentation. Uh, but we do that on purpose. So I'll get into that in a second, but let's pray first. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together. Before we jump into this um, this message, what do you have to share with us, Lord? I pray that you would just take control of everything that's said. I pray that it would be your words and not mine, and that this time would be completely dedicated to glorifying you and um, explaining your work in Honduras, but also reaching out to our hearts. I pray that you'd reach mine as well, and just continue to work um, in and through each of us that are here, Lord. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, I went to Honduras for the first time um, quite, I guess it's not yet, just yet, but there we are. Okay. It must have started out on a black one. So anyway, there we are. We uh, this, is, uh, this is our fancy picture. Okay. We call it our fancy picture because we do not like to, we're not dress up kind of people usually. We're very, uh, relaxed. Um, this is what we have, they make us do for our prayer cards. So you guys can see that. So this logo is for El Simbrador. I want to ask you guys what the word sanctification means. What is it? Mm hmm. Set aside. Is it a noun? Is it a, well, I guess it would always be, but a noun, a process, uh, a one-time thing, a once and done? No. This last term has taught Ashley and I, and we've knew, we, I guess we kind of knew it in our hearts, but, you know, you get to a certain point in your walk when you kind of think you're doing okay, and you think things are going bad, and you can get to those points. But then God will point out later on or in some thing in your life that, you know what, you've got some learning to do. Uh, you don't have it all together. And uh, we didn't necessarily get some big wake-up call this last term, but we did, um, we did feel 
the potter's hands on the clay. We'll just put it that way. Um, the sanctification process um, was begun. I once heard a missionary, a very seasoned one, 30, 40 years on the field, once tell me, um, kind of right before retirement, you know, I was never more sanctified than when I finally became a missionary. I grew up in church my whole life, but I was sanctified on the field. And I was sent to hopefully help other people get sanctified, but I found that God did it in me on the field while I was doing that work. And I found that that can be true for us too. Uh, we definitely found that to be true this, this last term. We, uh, it was a very good term, but it had some different things that we're going to share with you today. A lot of what we're going to share is very real. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, we, uh, were, before we came home on this, this, this HMA, this furlough, we asked a good missionary friend of ours, what do we tell people about this last term? Because this is a friend of ours who's walked with us through this term and knew what we'd kind of faced or different things we'd gone through. Um, and she said, just tell them what it is. You know, missionaries aren't always that, that image of, you know, the, the dressed real nice with the Bible under their arms going out and conquering people for Jesus. There is that, but there's also life. And it's a combo. It's a mix. We're basically doing your, what you do in life here, but we're doing it there. And it's, it's different. And we'll explain a little bit about what that means here in a second. But um, sort of the formal part of the intro, uh, you guys can see up on the screen, the middle logo is World Gospel Mission. That's who we've worked for from the beginning. We love WGM. They've always been there for us. Um, we've never thought twice about our work with them. We I feel very blessed. A lot of missionaries, they'll, they'll start out with one organization and slowly over time they'll shift and maybe three or four by the time they retire. But after 13 years, I've never felt that desire. It's been home and it's a wonderful, wonderful group of people to work with. Um, the logo on the right is El Sembrador. That's a school. That's where we actually live. How many of you know about El Sembrador? Quite a few, right? I mean, it's, we don't go a lot of places where no one's heard of it. It's, uh, it's, lots of missionaries have been there over the years. Lots of people have served there, but it is a boarding school for young men in rural Honduras. It's about four hours outside of the capital city. It's in a very sparsely populated area, but a very beautiful area. You'll see some of those pictures in a minute. Um, we do have female students. I need to clarify that. They just don't live there. Uh, they commute every day, but we do have both men and women students on campus. They just, uh, the men, the guys, a lot of them live there and the women all commute. Uh, but our elementary school also, they're all commuters. So we have a lot. Most of our student body actually commutes. Uh, wasn't the way that was back in the day when El Sembrador was in its original phase. Everyone lived there. Uh, but now it's uh, about a third of them live there and the rest of them are bussed in every day. So the logo on the left is we work with a denomination called the um, really long, drawn-out name in Spanish, but Evangelical Holiness Church of Honduras. That's the name of the, of the denomination. It was started by WGM in the 30s, 40s, and it was uh, we this last year, or I guess it's been almost three years ago now, um, they, were, they have a seminary. That's the name, the logo you see up there, Cetesa. And the seminary did not have a director about three years ago. And so they came knocking on our door and said, will you be the directors of the seminary? And so we are. That's what we're doing. And then when we tried to not be, when we came home for furlough, not that we didn't like it, we loved the work, but when we tried, we were coming home for HMA, we thought, well, we need to pass that on so somebody here can do that. You know, it makes more sense that that person be here, attend the events, be there to speak and do all these different things. But 
after we said we weren't going to do it anymore, they came to us about three, four days later and said, no, that's not going to work. So you just need to do it, but from the U.S. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, we've been leading the seminary from here while on HMA, but we have people that go to the different things for us. Uh, we love all three of those things. They all form our identity in Honduras or what God has called us to. It's shifting a little bit when we get back. All the logos are staying the same, but the emphasis is shifting kind of from one to the other, and I'll explain a little bit about what that means. This is Honduras um, in, a, in and of itself, the map. Um, this We were just in Honduras a few weeks ago. Uh, we had to go down for a seminary event that we promised to be there in person for. And while we were there, I we finally visited. I can say I've been to all 18 departments now. Finally got the last one. I went about five years where I'd been to all of them except for this little one in the corner. And we finally got there. It, I'm not sure if it was smart or dumb, but we drove about 12 extra hours for me to go there. Um, didn't know it would take that long because the map did not say it was going to be that long, but there'd been a lot of landslides and things, and so, boy, we were out there. So... We, we've, we love this country. The big one in the middle, the big orange one there in the middle is actually where we live, and we live right in the center of it. Um, that's where El Sembrador is located. Tegucigalpa is down here. So when you come to Honduras and visit, you fly here, you drive here, spend the night, and then you drive out to El Sembrador. That's how you get to visit us. We have a brand new, beautiful airport, and it's known as the Tegucigalpa Airport. But the Tegucigalpa Airport is not in Tegucigalpa. It's an hour and a half away. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we, uh, that's, that's where it's at. It's, it's beautiful. You no longer have to go on the real short runway when you get there. And uh, people like that part because it's less freaky. So uh, it's, it's kind of a nice experience now. You land normal. Uh, what is Honduras's number one export? It's fruit. You guys eat them a lot, I'm sure. Some of you do. Bananas. I heard a word, bananas. We have a lot of bananas. Bananas, bananas, bananas. And they're very cheap, and they're delicious. And Dole um, owns a huge chunk of the North Coast, and they grow a lot of the bananas and ship them to the States. So much so that Dole essentially built their own little port city that only they use. Uh, just for their ships to go in and out of. There are so many bananas that they export. Bananas are, this is the number two export. What is it? I heard someone, I, I always hear the right answer and the wrong one at the same time, and they're always the same two. Um, the wrong answer is cranberries. That is what they look like. The right answer is coffee. That's what coffee looks like when you pick it. It uh, goes through a long ordeal afterwards before it looks like what you drink, but this is what it looks like when it comes off the plant. Uh, they pick it, it looks like exactly like cranberries, but they peel off that outer kind of gummy uh, layer, and then the bean inside is usually green. Then they put it outside in the sun, and they just let it cook, and then it just gets brown, I guess. I don't know the whole process. I love it, and Ashley lives on it, so that's kind of the, we need it for survival, but uh, that's kind of where we're at. So the message side of things, where are we going to go with what we want to share today? I shared this at camp, so if you were at camp, I apologize that you're going to hear the same thing again, but today I remembered my tape measure, and at camp I did not. So I went through a time of doubt. How many of you have been through times of doubt? 
plenty. It's life, you know, and especially in ministry, there seems to be a lot of doubt. Not that you have to always give in to it, but it happens. You know, doubt happens and you have to face it and figure out what you're going to do with it, how you're going to get through it. This message is not meant to be a negative one, by the way. We're going to explain how we got through all this and it was a good thing. But we had a friend come to us, a family member actually came to me and said, he's not an eloquent speaker. I don't think he's ever spoken in front of a group in his whole life. But he came to me with a tape measure and he pulled it out to 70 centimeters, which is right there. 70 centimeters. That's what we've got. When you look at Psalm 90, it's what some theologians claim is the oldest psalm. They're not in chronological order. They were written over the course of 1,400 years from the oldest to the newest, which was Psalm 150. But the last 10 were added later. But the first, the oldest one, a lot lot of people think was Psalm 90 because Moses wrote it. Don't think Moses knew he was writing what would one day be used as a hymn, essentially, but he did write it, and it became a part of the Psalms. Now, in that, he tells us what the length of a human life is. What is the normal length of a human life? 70, 80, or beyond if you're blessed. You know, it can be more than that. I had a great aunt. She, she, we, she was quite a lady. She was, she, was finally, the Lord took her home like less than a month before her 100th birthday. People can live a really long time, and that's God blessing them. But 70 here. And my dad, my, or my dad was the guy talking to me about this. I gave that away. So anyway, he told me when I was going through this time of doubt, he told me, he said, this is 70. He said, I'm more or less here on that scale. And I have to sit here and look at when I reach the end or whenever God says is the end, what am I going to take and give to him? What did I do for him? What did I use my life for? Did I live it well? Did I live what I was called to do? Did I do what he needed me to do? Where are you at on the scale? And I told him I'm not quite halfway. And he's like, in those times of doubt, when you really feel like you're not sure how much more you can take, You need to remember that at the end of it all, do you want to tell him you gave up? Or do you want to tell him you were intentional and purposeful in what you were trying to accomplish? And that was important for me to hear. You know, it was important because I got there and I thought to myself, you know, some people, they don't get the 70. They don't even get that. They don't, you never really know. It's kind of a, it's, it's a sad reality, but the human life is very fragile. So where are you at and what are we going to do with it? is the big question. He told me, you want to make sure, maybe God is asking you not to be a missionary, he said that, and that wasn't what God wanted, but he was telling me, he's like, you're, you want to make sure you're running towards something and not away from something if you ever are going to make a change. God needs to know what you're doing, and he's going to tell you what you're doing. We're not. We're going to continue in missions, but it's, it was an interesting period of time as we tried to figure all this out. I'll dive into that a little bit more in a second. El Sembrador, this is a piece of it, just a very small piece of it. Um, all of you are welcome to visit. It's not actually that hard of a trip. It really isn't. It's not a complicated journey down there. You can go in a matter of a day. You're there, less than a day. Uh, usually, we leave from Minneapolis, St. Paul. Ashley's from Minnesota. So we'll fly out of there, but by 2 p.m., we're there if we leave at 6 a.m. on a flight from Minneapolis. Two flights. Neither of them are longer than three hours. It's a very easy journey. Uh, the journey from the airport to El Sembrador is longer than the flying process. 
So uh, it's a beautiful drive, and it's all paved, so it's not like it was in the old times. It is, a, it is a very comfortable process, so any of you that want to come, it is not impossible. El Sembrador is a beautiful place. This is our high school and our elementary school. We have roughly 350 to 400 kids total, preschool through 11th grade. Um, that is the size of our school, both between residential and commuters. A side of El Sembrador a lot of people don't see is our farm. El Sembrador is roughly 1,400 acres. Uh, it's, a, it's a very large place. We support the school through the farm. The farm covers about 60% of our budget. Uh, we have a dairy, and we have a meat herd, and a hog herd. And then we've also got, um, um, oh gosh, it just left me, meat, dairy, hogs, and uh, oh yeah, chickens. That's what it was. We got chickens. We don't process them for meat. We just do the eggs. But uh, a lot of chickens. So that's that's kind of where our farm is at. Now, I want to explain to you all, remember I started out talking about what are you going to do with those 70 years and sometimes going through feelings of doubt? Right before we went back to the field last time, it's been almost six years since we were here speaking with you guys. Right before we left the last time, this is sort of how we felt. Just full of life. Just radiant, you know, just amazing. And, you know, the picture's beautiful. And I was about 50 pounds thinner. And it was all just great. You know, it was just we were all super ready to go and we were on fire for what the Lord was going to do. And then the term hit, and then COVID, and Evelyn's fiasco of a birth, and just overwhelm. Just all this stuff happens, and this is how it ended. <laughs> this is kind of a, <laughs> this is kind of how it. This is how kind of how it felt. This is a, we just really didn't know what to do, but uh, you know God was faithful in it all. He really was. It was a fruitful term, but it was a hard term, and I'll explain that a little bit. Good, because the beginning started out, this is our home on a weekend. Um, we love it when the boys come over, they come and watch movies at our house, and you want to know something interesting, these are the moments when they get closer to the Lord. You know, some will come to the altar, but most of the time when they're willing to listen to you or ask questions about their faith, it's when they're relaxed and they feel that they're there at home. That's when it happens most, you find that to be the case. Um, this was Ashley's uh, ministry. She had a ministry with the women on campus, uh, a ministry that had been dead at El Sembrador for quite a while. Ashley kind of came in and gave it new life and doesn't really have to run it. She just had to kind of go and spark it. And now each week, a different one of them leads it in their home and it kind of moves around campus. And it's this wonderful, vibrant thing. We've been gone almost a year and it hasn't stopped going yet. Uh, it's been really exciting uh, to see these women come to grow closer to the Lord. All these ladies represent different parts of our campus. This lady's been our school janitor for like tw almost 30 years. This lady's husband runs the beef herd. This lady's husband works in the, in the dairy. This lady works on the dairy herself. This lady's husband is probably El Sembrador's longest serving employee. He's been there almost exactly 40 years. Uh, this lady's husband is the farm mechanic. It just goes on and on. All these people represent different parts of our campus, and these ladies come in, and El Sembrador is much more than just a group of students. El Sembrador is a huge community of adults. When we are at our high season, when we have our field workers, or our seasonal workers on staff, our staff can get up to 130. So you think we've got this huge staff of adults, too, that most people don't ever hear about because we talk about the students a lot. We really found our passion for the adults grow this last time as we started to work with them in their spiritual life and growth. And this was one of the ways that Ashley especially was able to do that. 
We had baptisms on campus. We always do it at the river. We take pickaxes and giant gunny sack bags, and we fill those bags with dirt. We dig out this big hole by the bridge and then under, under the water, and we put up these, these sandbags to keep all the current away while we do the baptism. And uh, it usually stays up for about a day or two, and we just enough time to do the baptism. But that's where we do the, uh, the baptisms on campus is at our river. Same river that the cattle graze in or walk through, so... It's a farm. It's just the way it is. But that's our baptismal. We don't have a beautiful uh, sunken hot tub. You know, we don't have any of that. So it's just sort of go to the river and baptize. And after every single kid, they sing. They sing a big, the same hymn over and over and over. But it's a huge celebration time. I put this picture up here specifically because you'll notice on the right, that is not a student. That is one of our staff members, the first adult to be baptized on campus in decades. Um, we had been really purposefully trying to reach into our adult community on campus and make headway with them. This guy's the director of the farm. Um, he asked to be baptized before the pandemic hit. Then the pandemic came. The kids went home, and I said, okay, we can still do your baptism. And he said, no, I want to wait because I want the kids to see it, and I want my staff to see it. And we did. We waited. He never, he, two years later, we got, he got baptized. It was a very exciting day. Then we were invited to take on the seminary. We love the seminary. Um, the seminary requires us to wear our fancy clothes more often. Um, we, I grew up on a farm, so that's what we called it. You know, there's clothes and there's fancy clothes. So this was where we found that we all of a sudden worked with a, a student body of almost 200, um, all these pastors in training. Um, and we go all over the country teaching classes. We both teach online with that and in person. We go to all the graduations. Um, it involves a lot of travel. We didn't realize how much travel, and while we did love the work at the seminary and still do, uh, we very quickly realized we were stretched way too thin. Uh, I was pastoring at El Sembrador. Ashley was teaching and doing other things at El Sembrador. And I was on the leadership team for the mission and studying for my PhD. Ashley was studying for her master's. And then all of a sudden, the seminary. And we were just spread thin like too much butter on toast. You know, it was just too little butter on toast. It just felt like we were just so thin. We just couldn't. We were we felt like we were stretched to the breaking point where we just... My homework time was from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and I was up every morning at 6.30 to go to work in the office again. It's just rotate, and the joy was starting to, to wane in the work, and I started to kind of lose a little energy, you know, and that, that push forward. And so we get to this picture that really describes how the term felt. Un camino duro means a difficult path. This is our road during rainy season. <laughs> um, just It's full of potholes. Difficulties came up, as they can in Christian life in general. We all know what that's like. When we get to a point where we really feel like, okay, what haven't I done right? What could I have done better? Why is all of this happening and what, what is the point? And you get tired. You just get tired. We had difficult things start to occur that made it even more pile on. La última noche, this was the last night the students were on campus before they went home for COVID. They were told to pack a backpack for two weeks and two years later they still weren't back. Our purpose started to shift, and we started to feel like we were floating in the wind like some kite without a person controlling it. We didn't really know what was God doing. Now, we had purpose in it with the seminary and other work, but it was still complicated. Then, our greatest blessing, and also one of our greatest points of stress at the time, 
Um, Ashley, uh, had, we didn't know we would have kids just because of different health concerns. And, uh, but God did a miracle and we, Ashley was pregnant. And, uh, Evelyn was born, but it was an extremely high risk pregnancy. And she was on bed rest for an awfully long time. And we had a lot of pressure. Come back to the States. Other pressure. Stay here. We didn't know what to do. It was in the middle of the, the scarier part of COVID when no one really knew what it was. It was very, it was very in a lot of tension. We just didn't know what to do. We felt very lost. Ashley eventually decided, just said, you know what? The Lord's asking us. We just need to stay here. This is our home. This is where our stuff is. This is where he has us right now. Let's just stay here. We'll be more comfortable here in our house than staying in a guest room in someone's basement, you know, for nine months, which we don't have a home in the U.S. Uh, so we thought, well, we'll just stay. Fast forward nine months, eight months, seven and a half months, I guess. And uh, six weeks early, Evelyn shows up. And when she shows up six weeks early, there's a lot of chaos. One of her lungs doesn't open right, and she's got blue extremities. Um, and very quickly, she's extremely jaundiced. She's very yellow. But she had issues when she was first born, when um, the first, she was in three hospitals in the mid, in over two days, and she was in one clinic, she was starting to be born, and in order to prevent that, she had her umbilical cord wrapped twice, she, they, they kept her in, but trauma happened in that, and she ended up uh, having some bleeds under her skin, thank the Lord, not in her skull, but she had pockets of blood in her skin in the back of her head. It was just a nightmare. Afterwards, we didn't know what to do. They sent us to the next hospital where we didn't know anyone, at, they had the C-section, Evelyn was born. She couldn't breathe. They had an incubator, but they didn't have infant-sized tubes and stuff and all this thing. So here they are with scalpel trying to cut things and make them, modify them for a little kid. And, and this is the, then they tell me that they can't take care of Evelyn well enough here. Ashley has to stay there though, because she's just had an operation, but Evelyn needs to go to Tegucigalpa and I've got to go with her or stay with Ashley. Pick one. That's what they told me. And I just hit rock bottom that day. I did. I just told the Lord, I said, get Evelyn through this, and I'm going home. This is just, I've had it. You know, we, we really, we had, we got to kind of a stretching point that day. But they didn't have their ambulance because it was out dealing with someone else, so we had to find an ambulance. We found a guy whose car was legally an ambulance, but it was a Honda with the back seat sawed out, and he had a gurney that he rolled in there, and they ratchet-strapped an infant bathtub to it. And that's what Evelyn rode uh, to Tegucigalpa in. And they didn't have a ventilator, so the doctor had to pump air into her lungs the whole way manually. Um, I couldn't go in the ambulance because they didn't fit, so I drove behind it. And uh, it was just a mess. And we get to, to and this is the same day Hurricane Etta hit. So we're also just, just pounding rain. And it's just, I'd had it. I, what else could have gone wrong? You know, I thought, no one's going to believe this. It's so weird. I said, it's such a fantastical story. No one's going to believe this ever actually happened. But we get to Tegucigalpa. You know, she was in the hospital a month. She had her ventilator. They told her she'd need heart surgery for this. And if she learns to walk and if she learns to speak right and if this and if that and all these things that we're trying to mentally prepare ourselves for, things she wouldn't be able to do, supposedly. Uh, she left the hospital a month later without a single thing wrong. You know, and that was a, a testament to God's faithfulness and His power. Because a couple of the doctors, especially her cardiologist, she had had a problem in her heart, supposedly, and her cardiologist explained it to us and all this. And when we left the hospital, the cardiologist lady just flat out told us there's really no good reason why that would have fixed itself. 
There's really no reason. There's, there's no, I can't explain it. And it was just, we walked out of there knowing that God was with us, and we didn't leave. You know, we stayed there and allowed Evelyn to enjoy her home. She's Honduran, you can tell, right? She's, uh, she's blonde and blue eyes, but she's got, she's Honduran. She was born there. She's got dual citizenship. We got other news, uh, ministry that I'd been involved in in Tegucigalpa, this group of kids that I used to work with in this gang neighborhood. Um, a few of these kids are no longer living. Uh, some of them, uh, all of them but one, that are, are involved in gang activity. And it was just all very devastating news just kept coming and just one blow after another. Then we get um, these two villages, names that are extremely easy to pronounce, but two villages that were very close to my heart and two pastors that were close to my heart. One of them, no fault of his own, just his whole world fell apart because of some decisions his wife had made and he lost his whole world, his everything, ministry, his whole life. He just ended up going wherever he could find a place to be, to live, and just was trying to scoot by and he had a powerful ministry, just lost it all, it all unraveled. Uh, The second one was a pastor who turned a church of five people, not him, God did it, but he was faithful in this ministry and turned into a church of 70. And Powerful, powerful ministry. Someone gets jealous, says some things they shouldn't, and he loses his whole. They're able to legally and in every way prove that nothing was true, but because everything works so slowly in Honduras, it didn't have, it didn't, the corrections weren't made fast enough for him to not lose everything. So he did, and he lost everything, his ministry, his work, everything. He he just hops from job to job now doing random work for people. We started to feel down. We started to feel a little down and not sure what we were going to do. We realized that our vision was not 100% on key. Now, I have reached a kind of a time limit, I think, and I need to respect that. But some of um, what we went through, I've never been to Ireland, but it's been a dream trip of mine forever. I've got Irish relatives, and I love history a lot. And there's this hill in Ireland called the Hill of Slain. Some of you may have been there if you've been to Ireland. I don't know. Um, but it's this famous place. It's got these abbeys on it now. They're they're defunct. No, They're not functioning. They're ruins now. But um, shortly after the Romans left Great Britain, the Romans were never in Ireland, but, but they, when they left Great Britain, it started to affect everything in the area. You know, they were such a presence. And society started to collapse, and the Dark Ages began, you know, just all these feuds and wars. And it was a scary time to be alive. But in Ireland, um, there was no Christianity at that point. Um, the first few people that took it, it was St. Uh, Patrick. You know, we hear about a, a lot about him and St. Patrick's Day. But uh, he famously made his stand for Christianity on the Hill of Slain. That's why these abbeys are there. There was a very pagan king in the region who declared there would be no fires burned in the region for however many weeks leading up to this great festival for this false god they were going to sacrifice to. And Patrick said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he and other believers, they got together and they lit a fire and they praised the Lord in that place. This pagan king shows up with his soldiers ready to kill him. And he, the king takes one look at what Patrick is doing and just God does a total transformation in him. And he says, you know what? I respect what you're doing and that you believe so firmly in what you believe. It must be something special in you. So I'm not just going to forgive you, but you can go and you can preach in my nation. Open the door for Christianity to reach that whole region of Ireland. It was fascinating. And a, a poem was written by that, about that, a couple hundred years later. So we're talking about 700 after Christ. This is a poem is written. 
Fast forward about a thousand years, that poem has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. A thousand years later, they translate it into modern English. 200 years after that, early 1900s now, they put it into a hymn. And this hymn is one that we still sing today. My favorite hymn, it always has been my whole life, um, Be Thou My Vision. Um, our vision had gotten a little skewed and we needed to get it right back on point. And it was possible to do that. We just needed to refocus and rehune that and get that back into place. And that's what we've done. So my question today in closing is this. In Romans 8, it talks about everything is going really well in Honduras. We got stretched a little thin. We were tired. We came back. We've learned our lesson, and we're going back stronger than ever. We uh, have accepted a new role. I'm stepping out of the pastorate at El Sembrador to take on the role of general director. Um, a totally different world, um, a very much more administrative world. Um, it's a lot of people to be over, and I would ask your prayers in that because it is a little nerve-wracking uh, in a sense, but I know that God's in it, and he'll take care of us in that as well. But Romans 8, I love this chapter because it talks about how when we pray, we often don't even really know what we need to pray for. We pray, but there's always things that we aren't even really aware we need prayer for. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us continuously. And that is so comforting to know that even when we're going through struggles and we don't really fully understand it, He does. And the Holy Spirit is consistently interceding for us. It wasn't a simple work of coming to earth and dying on the cross for our sins, and that's not simple. I say that, but, but Christ stayed longer. He didn't just finish the job, wipe his, wash his hands of us and move on. He's still working. It makes you ask, what kind of love is that? But it also makes me ask, who should I be interceding for? There's a verb in Spanish, intercesión. It's not, that's not the verb, that's the noun, but intercession. When someone is sick in the church, the church goes together and they pray over the person in their home. They're not expecting a miraculous healing, but they just go to be with the person. I love that part of their culture. They just always do it if someone's struggling. And if I were to ask you guys, could you go with me to intercede for this kid if he needed it? Could you do it? Just by looking at him? Probably. It's just a little kid. Not, not too complicated. This kid, um, it wouldn't work so well for him. He, uh, he was a Sunday school student of mine 10 years ago. Um, his parents um, got into some trouble or were at a party, and it was not a great place for a kid to be. But in a moment of uh, discontrol in their lives, they picked him up and threw him in a river, and he drowned. He is the first funeral I ever spoke at there. But you could intercede for a kid like that. So I don't have a better, better picture of him. I had to cut and paste it out of a bigger group picture. Could you intercede for this kid? This is a success story. This kid's going great. He's one year away from graduating. From, he's from a village that doesn't get a lot of high school graduates out of it, so it's exciting. But you could intercede for that face. How about this face? A lot of you did intercede for her because you knew what we were going through when she was born, and you prayed. We communicated that with all of you, and you were, faith, you were very kind and faithful, and you prayed for her, and we appreciated that. Now the next question is, could you intercede for these faces? I ask that question in a lot of our presentations, and it always hits me and others, and it's just, you know, the Bible doesn't give you permission to love them less than you love her. As a matter of fact, it tells you to do the opposite, almost. It challenges us to go find the one that was lost. 
And oftentimes it's hard because it can become difficult and we can face trials and we sometimes want to give in to those trials, but we just can't. We have to remember the example that Christ gave us. At the very end of his life, Christ was hanging on the cross. We all know how that ended, but I think it's fascinating if you think about it. He could have done anything in his last moments of life. Now, we knew he wasn't going to call his angels to bring him off that tree because that would have been giving in to that temptation. We knew that. But he could have done anything else. Could have cured cancer. Could have made leprosy not a thing. Could have made hunger not a thing. Could have done all these things from the cross. But he chose to do something else. They include this discourse about the two thieves on either side of him. He gave us one last example about what our call as Christians is to reach the lost. He did it one more time as if we hadn't gotten it clear enough yet. One more time. He did not go into glory alone that day. I don't think we're meant to either. So my question is, who are you going to take? Who have you talked to about Christ? Who have you shown Christ's love to? I'm not saying you've got to have a list and numbers of who all you've ministered to and who's going with you, but meditate on that. Think about it. Who are we going to reach to? Whose hearts are we going to touch? And how are we going to live out this mission? Because the 70 goes by awfully fast. I'm not halfway through it, and I know it goes fast. I can't believe what Evelyn's ordeal was three years ago. I can't believe that. I feel like I was just there in that hospital room. But when we get to the end of it all, it's a big test. It's a beautiful one because life is beautiful and it has great parts of it and God lets us live good things in life too. But at the end, we have to have something. We got to say, I wasn't just sitting there. I used what you gave me to do something for your kingdom. And I'm not saying we're all going to go out into the street and preach. Not everyone's called to that. It could simply be going to your neighbor who we know isn't a Christian and say, hey, come over for coffee. Did you go to church on Sunday? Would you like to go with me next week? Even if they march out of your house mad, you tried. It's hard, but it, it's, it's true. I want to. This is the very last slide, I promise. This is, I love old hymns. I love old hymns a lot. And I love I have a thing for British history. I don't know why. I have no ties to Britain. My family's not British, but I love medieval history and all that stuff. And this is a guy um, who was a hymnist in the 17th century, in the 1600s. Um, his hymns are not in our hymnals. I wish they were. Um, Richard Baxter, he wrote a number of really good hymns, but there's one in particular that has always stuck out to me. And I won't read the whole thing, but it's what I repeat to myself when things feel hard or when things feel tough, because there's always hope in ministry, but sometimes you need a reminder. And this is what I always remind myself of, the last uh, stanza of this hymn. The title of the hymn is, Lord, It Belongs Not to My Care. But the stanza goes like this, My knowledge of this life grows small. The eye of faith grows dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. So when everything seems crazy, or when everything seems to not go as you would have it, it is so peace-giving and life-revitalizing just to know that he's already got it figured out. And if you're with him, that's all you need. How are we going to show that peace to others and help them grasp that fully? That's the big question. 
We are visiting you guys at a very awesome time in our furlough. I don't have to go around and do the big pitch every time anymore because we are very, very, very close to going back 100% funded. We are only missing 5%, right? Oh, I didn't even put the thing up there. Oops. So 5% is what we're missing of our monthly support. That's only a few hundred dollars of people saying that, yes, I'll give $20 a month or $10 a month to keep the bachelors in Honduras. That's a really good place to be when we still have 11, 12 church visits left, but we're so close to being over that hump. We have to go back in December because we have to be there in January when the new school year starts. So I'd pray, I'd ask you to pray with us in that. God knows, you know, we don't have to, he knows, but if you feel called to be a part of that, don't be afraid to do that. Ask us about it. Ashley's got our prayer cards. Our table is downstairs. Um, you could go and check that out. Join our email list. Um, we're terrible about sending them out. So, um, you won't have to worry about being bombarded with emails all the time because we forget. So, uh, you can do that. Um, we appreciate everything that you guys do for us. Like um, Pastor Jim was saying, this was one of the first places I spoke in when I came the very first time. Very first place I ever had regular support from in Oregon was here in Happy Valley. And I thought, it's always been a special place for me, and I always probably will be. And I appreciate that spot that you guys have in our ministry. So thank you. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for everybody's patience as I went way past my time. But I thank you for speaking to our hearts and giving us something to chew on, to, to think about, to, to meditate on. Lord, help us to figure out what it is you'd have us do, what last thing it is we have to think about in our lives, what do we need to do to serve you better, to fulfill the calling you've placed on us. Thank you, God, for every person here. You know where every person is in their lives. It could be a very positive time. It could be a very hard time. It could be a sad time. I don't know what it is, but you do. And I pray that you would arrive at each person's heart exactly how you need them to be there and in the ideal moment. You always do, Lord, and we thank you for that. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for sharing with us. Some of you uh, have uh, already supported them. And as you do, uh, continue to be faithful in that as they can serve in Honduras uh, for the Lord. But also, uh, if you if you got time today, you head on downstairs and visit them at the table and get some, maybe some more information on how to pray for them even more. Um, but what I'd like to do here at the, before, well, while we sing, I guess, uh, for these closing songs, is to uh, take a love offering for them. I know they're just very close to this, uh, being fully supported. Maybe you want to go that route. Maybe you want to take a share out with them as far as supporting them monthly. Talk to them about that and let them know. But uh, I'd like to at least be able to take a love offering for, all, uh, for the day here today and uh, be able to bless them with that. So they've got expenses and other things going on as well, too. So, John, come forward. Uh, we'll pray, and, uh, and then we'll uh, end our time here with a couple songs. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come to your house. And, Lord, thank you for the bachelets and how you're working through them to reach the lives there at El Sembrador. Pray, Lord, that you continue to use them for your glory. And, Lord, we pray, Lord, that the, that 5% will come in for them and that they'll be able to be fully supported when they uh, leave for Honduras. And Lord, we just ask that you would raise those people up that will support them financially and, of, of course, prayerfully as well. 
Well, Lord, as we uh, um, uh, enter time here together, uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, the offering that we can give them, this love offering, will be a blessing to them as well. And pray, Lord, that again, you just continue to uh, uh, work through them and have your hand upon them and uh, bless them. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.